It's been 20 years since the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq. But what of the Iraqi Christian population in this ancient region? Founder of Nazarene.org, Father Benedict Keeley, and National Catholic Register's Edward Penton are here with an update. The World Health Organization celebrated its 75th anniversary, but does the body have any influence over U.S. sovereignty? You might be surprised. President of Women's Rights Without Frontiers, Reggie Littlejohn, is here with analysis. The world over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me a tweet at Raymond Arroyo. First, some news. A small Missouri town has become a pilgrimage destination of sorts. Hundreds of visitors are flocking to Gower, about 40 miles north of Kansas City, to see what appears to be the incorrupt body of a nun who died four years ago at the age of 95. Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster was exhumed in order to move her coffin beneath the chapel altar of her order, the Benedict Sisters of Mary, Queen of the Apostles. Sister Wilhelmina founded the order when she was 70 years old. Sister was not embalmed and placed in a simple wooden coffin. She was found to be remarkably well-preserved with little to no signs of decomposition. Now, the Catholic Church has documented hundreds of cases of incorrupt bodies over its history, and according to tradition, this could be a mark of holiness, but not necessarily an indicator of sainthood. Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster's body will remain on display until May 29th, after which she will be placed under protective glass. We'll keep an eye on that fascinating story. My next guests have been reporting and speaking out on the plight of Christians in Iraq and the Middle East for many years. They're here tonight to discuss the current state of the ancient Christian community of Iraq 20 years after the U.S.-led invasion. Rome correspondent for the National Catholic Register, Edward Penton, and founder of Nazarene.org, Father Benedict Keeley, who joins us from our D.C. studio. Thank you both for being here. Edward, I want to begin with a piece you wrote this week on the Iraqi Christian struggle to endure 20 years of Operation Iraqi Freedom. You write that some analysts have traced the catastrophe indicated, or inflicted rather, on uh, Iraqi Christians, especially by ISIS, on the formal disbandment of the Iraqi army which was a decision made 20 years ago by that coalition provisional authority, uh, basically an arm of the U.S. State Department. Do you believe that analysis? And how did that decision impact the Christian population in Iraq? Well, this is a, a contentious point, Raymond, because uh, the person who, uh, who implemented that order, Paul Bremer, who was President Bush's uh, uh, appointed head of state of Iraq after the invasion. He gave that order and he says that uh, the order actually uh, was, th they shouldn't have used the word to disband the army because the army was already disbanded. And in fact, he says that um, after there was some personnel changes that Donald Rumsfeld was sacked and, and other, other people that actually they managed to win the war against Al-Qaeda. Uh, but it was when um, the troops were withdrawn, the, the U.S. troops with, were withdrawn from Iraq in 2011, that it created a power vacuum that was then filled by ISIS. And so he says that, that it was that decision uh, which actually led to, to ISIS uh, taking over and, mm. and persecuting Christians. Um, but this is a debatable point. There's been other, others who say that it was actually uh, because that, that the army had disbanded, whether it was because of the order or not, it was the fact that it was disbanded led to this power vacuum after the invasion. But uh, but he insists that it happened later after 2011. Father Keeley, you have spent a great deal of time in Iraq. In 2003, the Christian population was 1.5 million people. Today, there are 200,000 Christians that remain. Give me a sense of what's happened to the Christians there. Where have most of them gone? And what is the current state of the Christians who remained behind? 
Well, if we were members of the World Wildlife Fund and we'd heard that an animal population had decreased from 1.5 million to 200,000, and now the Iraqi bishops are working on a prospective number of 50,000 Christians, there would be, if, they, if Iraqi Christians were frogs or toads, there'd be a worldwide outcry about this. This is what has happened. The Christian population has been decimated. There's a remnant, a true biblical word, there's a remnant left, but you speak to any Iraqi Christian from the highest to the lowest, and they put all the blame on the invasion in 2003. And as you remember, Raymond, mm. not to inflate your ego, but you were one of the people 20 years ago, one of the few speaking against it, along with our beloved late Holy Father John Paul II. He warned, he prophesied exactly what would happen, and this is what has happened to the Iraqi Christian population now. Mm. Yeah, Father Keeley, uh, Iraq's bishops are predicting the number of Christians could fall to 50,000. Uh, uh, Iraqi Christians are really on the brink of extinction. That's what that number means. What does the international community need to do to bring more attention to this situation? Can anything be done at this point? Well, it's easy to feel depressed and to feel that there's nothing that can be done. And without wanting to be over-pious, for us believers, for Christians, prayer. But that may seem obvious, but... Unfortunately, we know in the West that prayer for the persecuted is, is often put into the intercessions at Mass once a month, maybe, but it's not a, a, an urgency. If we look at the, the Acts mm. of the Apostles, the church, we're told in the Acts of the Apostles, when St. Peter was arrested, prayed constantly. One of the things my little charity is doing is trying to put a little icon of our Blessed Lady, Mother of the Persecuted, into churches yeah. so the bishops will highlight this. But, you know, Raymond, the strange thing is we give this icon and I've had bishops refuse. They th they'd prefer me to uh, have an ex exhibit about global warming, but persecuted Christians um, seems to be mm. a problem. But prayer, advocacy, speaking to your elected representatives, and aid, mm. practical aid. Is, the, the, the community will, will last now, but they, are, they, have been, they have been decimated all because of this invasion. Yeah, Father, I remember when the invasion was uh, about to happen, hadn't happened yet, and I had a Chaldean bishop on or two, and uh, many members of the Bush administration contacted me and was very, were very upset because these bishops were worried about the invasion and the impact it would have on what is the cradle of Christianity in the Middle East. It, is, it was, was uh, one of the vibrant communities of, of Christianity and certainly Catholics. Uh, Edward, Iraq's government today is heavily influenced by Iran. There are security concerns, very few job opportunities. What sort of hope is there among the younger generations in Iraq today to remain there? I mean, this is something you see also in the Palestinian territories and in Israel as well. The, the, the Christians feel, well, there's no future here and there are no numbers. I've got to get out. Right, exactly. Well, I remember when I was with Father Benedict, we both went uh, back in 2018 and we met some young people in Iraq. And they, they really are very desperate in the sense that they're, many of them are unemployed. They can't find work. Uh, there's also the security issue, which is constant. There are constant concerns about security. Um, but the unemployment and training and education is a real problem for them still. Uh, with, but there are signs of hope. There is um, in Erbil, for example, there's uh, a new university, the Catholic University of Erbil, which was set up with the help of the Italian Bishops' Conference. Um, and that's providing uh, education for, I think, something like 406 students so far. Um, but they're doing very well, and they've got a, a broad number of students, mostly Catholic, but also the Muslims as well, and some Yazidis. And so it's it's a very positive, hopeful sign, uh, that university. And it's really thanks to Archbishop uh, Bashar Warder of uh, Bill, um, mm. who has helped uh, push that forward. So there are signs of hope, but it's still a very desperate situation for, for young people especially. Father, in, uh, in 2021, Pope Francis visited Iraq. Uh, he brought a lot of attention to the plight of Christians living there. It was a beautiful visit. Is the Vatican doing enough in the wake of that visit now to bring attention to this persecuted community in Iraq and really throughout the Middle East? It's, it's far more than just Iraq. It's true. The, the visit of Pope Francis was greatly appreciated. It get, did give them a sense that they were not forgotten. They felt very forgotten for a long time. It's, it's over now. I was in Mosul yeah, just in January. There are still pictures of Francis everywhere. But 
Uh, the attention of the world, obviously, is in Ukraine, but also the terrible persecution, which needs to be highlighted in, in Africa, in Nigeria. There's always a sense that they've been forgotten. I would just encourage people uh, to remember, as you said, that it's the cradle of Christianity. It's our roots. When you cut the roots away from a tree, the entire, entire tree is in danger. I want to move on to a few other countries in the Middle East. Uh, Father Keely, in a recent interview, you said that the situation in Syria is appalling and, quote, everyone is short of everything. There have been heavy sanctions placed on Syria by the U.S., by the EU. What effects are these sanctions having on Christians in the country? All Syrians are suffering. I'll give you a little anecdote. I was in Syria in October of 2019. It's very difficult to get into uh, as a Westerner. But there are a lot of cats. The Arabs like cats. They don't really like dogs, but they like cats. There are a lot of cats being fed. And I heard a story recently. There are no cats, so hardly any cats left in Damascus because they were fed the scraps, obviously. There are no scraps to feed them. Uh, the international sanctions, obviously aimed at the Assad regime, uh, were, were meant to destroy the Assad regime. But the fact is the three great patriarchs of Damascus have all asked now twice for these sanctions to be lifted because the people are suffering. No food, no medicine, no heating. It's, it's absolutely tragic. And the Christian community, Pentecost Sunday is, is this weekend. We hear in that reading, which readers often uh, make quite a mess of when they read it, about the Parthians and the Medes and the Elamites. And the Syrians were there at the beginning of the church. Once again, if we don't care about our brethren who are suffering, who've given us so much, we didn't bring the gospel to them. They brought the gospel to us. We, we must care. We must be passionate. Yeah, it, it amazes me the kind of disregard we have for these. These are really the ancient communities of Christianity. These are your far, forefathers in the faith, and we sort of just put them out of mind and don't think about them. Many Syrians, uh, Father and Ed, uh, fled to Lebanon for refuge at the start of the war. Now that country is suffering from a failed state, economic collapse. Christians in Lebanon make up about 32 percent of the population. However, Lebanon is now facing a mass exodus due, due to the current situation. What do you foresee happening to the Lebanese Christian population? And I'll let you start. Yes, well, I think it's the case all, all across the Middle East that the Christians are, are suffering from this, and it's just a general seem to be growing instability across the region. And this, of course, was predicted, as we all remember, back in 2003. I remember the, asking somebody on when I worked at Vatican Radio, do you think this invasion will, will open a Pandora's box in the Arab world? And of course, many de denied it, those who were sympathetic to the war. But many of us, uh, I think, could foresee this happening. And I think uh, we're now reaping the fruits of it. I think in the end, the war uh, seems to have dis dis caused uh, instability across the region, and we're, we're sort of witnessing the fruits of that. Mm. Father, um, uh, you know, friends of mine did fundraisers for the Christian community in Lebanon that really is, again, under enormous pressure because they're not only having to deal with their own internal problems, they're absorbing Christians coming in from Iraq and other regions. Uh, what is the future there? I mean, this is probably now the largest Christian population in the Middle East. Uh, Egypt is the, is the largest still, but yes, ah, okay. uh, the, the, the situation in, Le in Lebanon is a disaster. It is, it's, as you described, a failed state. I was there in June last year. Uh, it's, it, as a, again, it's easy to become depressed. The, the Lebanese Christians are very tough, though. That's one of the things. I spoke to a Lebanese Christian politician, and he said, unlike in some places, he said, we will fight to the death if it comes to that. But it's off the map. It's not being talked about. Uh, it's very worrying. I, th I think politically, people should be aware, the political uh, pundits should be aware that this is all about Iran as well. The, the sheer uh, crescent mm. all the way from Tehran to Beirut. The in influence of Iran is terribly, terribly worrying. They're taking over that whole area. Iraq almost feels like being in, a, in an occupied country now. And it's the same for Lebanon. Right. Yeah. And in Palestine, Christians in the West Bank have been reduced from 18 percent to 1 percent in the last 70 years. The number of Palestinian Christians have dropped from um, 15 to 2 percent. Uh, most of that decline is attributed to a hostile political environment, lack of employment opportunities again. 
What are the bishops, uh, Ed, uh, church leaders, various Christian faiths, what are they doing to try to keep Christians from leaving that territory? I mean, look, I'm, I will, in full disclosure, I'm a member of the Franciscan Foundation for the Holy Land, um, which labors to create both housing and economic and uh, educational opportunities for the few Christians in that land. Who else is doing anything here? Well, I think it is left largely to the church. And I think many people see that the, the church is really the only uh, entity in the in the Middle East and in, in the Holy Land especially that can bring these, these, these sides together um, and to bring peace to the region. And I remember when I was writing for a publication on the Holy Land, that it was often mm -hmm. uh, initiatives from the church, especially the Franciscans in the Holy Land, who were who were doing this work and, and trying to bring the sides together. Uh, but it's it's extremely hard, of course, and it's, it's this constant intractable um, conflict that never seems to be able to be solved. But at least um, mm -hmm. we had these relative periods where there is peace, but, uh, but I think we're seeing a sort of uptick, it seems, in, in growing tensions over there. Well, and, and the, um, I guess, de facto withdrawal of the United States from the Middle East, which has happened over the last few years, has created greater instability. The, the coming together, who would have ever imagined that we'd see Saudi Arabia mm. and, and uh, Iran coming together? Uh, but that's the situation as we see it today. Father Keeley, the organization that you founded, Nazarene.org, it works to bring aid to persecuted Christians. And as you mentioned earlier, you've started this icon project where you bring Mary, mother of persecuted Christians to parishes around the world and churches around the world, really to focus people on the constant prayer needed for the persecuted community. And I'm going to share some of this. You've established shrines in New York, London, uh, Clinton, Massachusetts, all of these have been established with the support of the local bishop. You, you'll be installing a new shrine in Sweden this summer. How did that project come about? Well, it's as I said earlier, Raymond, it's very important that the church is praying for the persecuted. And I particularly want that any priest could say I, I'd have a, an icon in my church, and that's great. But we want the bishop to say, this matters to me, this matters to my diocese. So we want the bishop to bless it and designate either his cathedral or his or a church in his diocese so that he's showing his, his people that prayer for the pers persecuted is important. Cardinal Arborelius, uh, Sweden, has a very large diaspora of Iraqi, Palestinian, and Syrian Christians, I think more than 200,000. And so Cardinal Arborelius, the cardinal in Sweden, has agreed to bless this icon. It'll be the first in Western Europe, again, as a symbol of prayer. So any bishop, uh, Raymond, any bishop friend of yours, if he wants a, an icon, we'll, we'll bring it. There's no cost, but we want to show all the things we've been talking about over these minutes can, can depress people greatly. Uh, we believe that prayer will change a lot if we pray. And what kind of response have you seen to the erection of these shrines? Wonderful. Uh, we had the first, uh, in Clinton, Massachusetts, we also premiered the first mass written in the world by Paul Jernberg, the Catholic composer, a mass for persecuted mm -hmm. Christians. Absolutely beautiful. I believe EWTN will be showing it at some point. A beautiful mass in English. And the people were just overwhelmed. Everyone who was there described it as an extraordinary experience. and. It triggers then that interest, that inquiry. Um, it's just a small thing, Raymond, but small is beautiful. Mm -hmm. you know, small things done with great love, as Mother Teresa used mm. to say. Finally, Ed, uh, I want to switch gears just moments before that I have with you here. Uh, days before the first version of those synodal documents we've been awaiting emerge, the Pope spoke to those running the Italian synodal process. And in an address, he urged them, I just read this today, he urged them to be a restless church, one that rejects what he called, quote, the self-referential theology of the mirror. How is all this, do you think, being, how is it being received in Rome? And how are people in general viewing this synod? Well, do you mean the Italian synod? Because there are so many going on at yep. the moment. But yes, the, the yep. Italian synod. Well, the synod, global uh, and the Italian. Yes. Well, the Italian one uh, has been, uh, actually has been on the cards for a while, uh, but the Italian bishops didn't, uh, as I understand it, weren't too too keen on the idea. And so it was delayed for quite a while, but now it's it's getting underway. 
Uh, of course, we've now got the German Synod and we've got other ones too. But I think um, the general sense, I think, is a certain weariness about these synods that it's all seems to be all about uh, discussing. And, and actually, for all the talk about the Pope not wanting to have a self-referential church, I think uh, a lot of people feel that these synods actually do cause the church to be self-referential because it tends to bring in a lot of sort of politics and ideology uh, and actually gets uh, people looking inward rather than outward. Now, of course, the long-term uh, goal is, of course, to try to help the church to evangelize through these synods. But I think the certainly that seems the short-term uh, result of these these meetings is is a sort of inward-looking church and uh, and one that yeah. gets all very much more ten, ten, uh, tense and uh, conflicting. Yeah, uh, we will get into more of this in the days ahead. But uh, I was uh, sort of interested when I read the Holy Father's comments there. He tried to create a lineage, if you will, of these synods, and he said, look, uh, Paul VI instituted these, and every four years there's been, been a synod. But those were synods of bishops, with bishops voting. This is a very different varietal, if you will, in that it's been opened up now to lay people voting and really the whole world having input and non-believers and believers. This is a very different flavor and, and, and scope than I think Paul VI or the fathers of the Second Vatican Council might have imagined. But we will leave it there. Father Benedict Keeley, Edward Penton, thank you both for being here. Uh, Ed's book, The Next Pope, The Leading Cardinals, or leading cardinal candidates, rather. Thank and you, Father Ronald. Benedict Keeley's ministry, by the way, can be found at Nazarene.org. Thank you both. The outsized influence of the World Health Organization was certainly evident over the last three years of the COVID pandemic. But how much influence does this unelected body have over the sovereignty of its member states? And should the United States reconsider its membership? With answers, we're joined by Reggie Littlejohn, human rights activist and president of Women's Rights Without Frontiers. Thank you for being here, Reggie. The World Health Organization celebrated its 75th anniversary in April. The organization exerted a great deal of influence and power during the pandemic. And it's recently announced a new pandemic accord among its member states. Reggie, what would this treaty require? And what would the U.S. adoption of such a treaty mean in response to pandemics here at home? Well, uh, Raymond, it is very concerning because there are, the pandemic treaty is half of what the WHO is pushing. The other half is amendments to the international health regulations. And if you put the two of them together and if they get adopted by the WHO, um, and we are still members of the WHO, then it would be a serious challenge to our national sovereignty and our personal medical freedom. So the way that it would hurt our national sovereignty is that what the WHO is pushing, what these agreements are pushing, is that instead of being an advisory body, what they would say would be binding. They would be able to mandate how we handle any kind of a health situation. That's the first thing. The second thing is it would not just pertain to human health, but also to animal health and plant health and the environment so that they could be mandating how we handle any kind of a health issue involving any aspect of life in the world, basically. Um, and then beyond this, the way that they will mandate this is and a way that they will be able to discover whether there is a health issue. And by the way, it doesn't have to be an actual verified pandemic. It could be any kind of a health risk, which again broadens their powers, is that the pandemic treaty has in it uh, two sections, one on surveillance and one on censorship. So um, member states, that would be, the United States would be one of the 194 member states, would agree to surveil their citizens um, through social listening and other means to see whether we are promulgating misinformation or disinformation. And misinformation and disinformation will be defined by the World Health Organization uh, being anything that is counter to the narrative that they are trying to push down. And the thing is, uh, Raymond, that they so deeply botched 
the COVID-19 pandemic crisis with all kinds of misinformation. Like they said, there was no human human transmission. They said, um, you know, they backed the Chinese Communist Party in saying that if we were to cut off flights from China, from Wuhan, that we were being racist. Meanwhile, China itself was cutting off flights internally from Wuhan. There's so much misinformation and disinformation that they are now backpedaling on uh, that anybody would challenge that in the beginning would be called, you know, somebody who is promulgating misinformation or disinformation, and they would be censored. So, um, so that has to do with national sovereignty, personal freedom of speech. But in terms of our medical freedom, they would be able to mandate what treatments that we could have and could not have. Meaning, uh, for example, let's say that we had another pandemic, which, you know, Dr. Fauci and Bill Gates have said that we're going to have another one, possibly shortly. Um, the World Health Organization itself could mandate um, vaccinations so that we would have no no choice at all. And it wouldn't even be, mm. okay, well, you get vaccinated, you stay home. It's like you have to get vaccinated. They could mandate it. Reggie, the, this accord is currently under consideration. When might it be actually adopted by member states? And is there a chance the U.S. would adopt it? What are you hearing? Oh, OK. So the U.S. would definitely adopt it. In fact, the U.S. has been uh, one of the major uh, forces behind it, Raymond. It's, it's, but um, right now, the, the World Health Assembly is meeting. They have an annual meeting at the end of May. Every year, they're meeting right now. And these uh, agreements are scheduled for vote in May 2024, a year from now. But it's possible that parts of them could be passed now. And in terms of the treaty, there is a paragraph there that says it can be adopted provisionally by a member state so that if, if part of it passes, the Biden administration could just send them a notice and say that they are already adopting it provisionally. Um, which circumvents the, the, the amount of time that you're supposed to have to be able to object to it. Hmm. Reggie, uh, you've long been keeping your eye on what's happening in China regarding the former one-child policy that became the two-child policy. Now it's three-child policy. How much demographic damage did Chinese communists, did the authority, do to itself and its society with that one-child policy? And now that they've moved to this three-child policy, is it working? Uh, well, they did incalculable damage, Raymond. About 10 years ago, they came out with a figure. They boasted that they had prevented 400 million lives through the one-child policy. Mm. And that number, 400 million, is greater than the entire population of the United States and Canada combined. That's an old number. I believe that the current number is probably closer to 500 million, half a billion lives prevented. And so what's happening now is that they are seeing that they uh, have a, a severely aging population, their workforce has gone down, and they don't have the younger population to support it. So that makes me very older, very worried about the older people. What are they going to do with the older people? But um, mm. so they've instituted this three-child policy, and they are trying to pressure eligible couples to have three children. Um, so you have to be married. And so, so what they're doing, and, and what I'm calling for, is for them to abandon all coercive population control. They desperately need babies. Why are they holding on to this three-child policy where it remains legal for them to forcibly abort unmarried women and fourth children? I happen to be a fourth child, so uh, I would have been forcibly aborted under the three-child policy. And the reason so, I think that they're— so, the, the, so, Reggie, the forced abortions are still occurring, even with the three-child policy? Once you exceed that number, that's it. They— force you to abort your child. Okay, so legally, they, they can occur. We don't have information out from saying this, because it's very hard to get um, information out from China, but I will tell you what I think they're doing. I think that they are trying to increase the Han Chinese population, and I think that they are keeping the, the three-child policy so that they can use it as a hammer against populations that they don't want to increase. For example, the Tibetans mm. and the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. I believe that they are continuing with the three-child policy with forced abortion in those areas, and that's why they don't just get rid of all population control. Mm. So it's a planned, it's a planned uh, ramp up, if you will, in population. 
I'll leave you the last. It's, al it's always planned, but but as you said, the plan is not working. Okay, they they think that they're God. They think that they can control the population. They can force people to abort, and they they think that they can force people to, to procreate. And in China, the, the young couples are not wanting to have two and three children, and a lot of couples in China don't want to have any children. And I and you know I think that there's a couple reasons for that. One is that I think the Chinese Communist Party did, you know, a, really got their message through that kids are not a blessing, they're a burden. And so you just don't want them. Okay, that was a big message of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and another message is that one is enough. A one, child policy, uh, one child family is perfect. They got that message through. Um, and then also, you know, in China, it's extremely expensive to have a child. Uh, so they don't pay, for, paying for school, paying for health care. A lot of people just don't want to have more than one. But I think a really crucial thing that nobody else really is talking about that I'm aware of is I believe that the young people in China were so broken because of the way that uh, the Chinese Communist Party came down on them with the uh, lockdowns that there's a sense of hopelessness. There's there's a movement in China that I've read about called the Lie Down Flat Movement. And it's, it's, it's just a note of despair. I saw a video of uh, Chinese COVID police during lockdown banging on the door of a young couple, trying to force them to be vaccinated or, or to go into quarantine. They didn't want to do it. They were arguing and arguing, and, um, and the couple would not budge. And so the COVID police said to them, this crime will redound to you and your children. And the young man said, we are the last generation. And that video has mm. gone uh, viral in China. And I and I believe that the decision not to have kids is in some ways a, a way that, that the young people are just, are, 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 uh, just emphasizing the despair that they feel because of the way that the government has hammered the country. Mm. Yeah, and breaking this regime because they can't keep this growth up or even sustain what they have now without a young population. It's going to be very difficult. Reggie Littlejohn, we will leave it there. Reggie's work at Women's Rights Without Frontiers is at womensrightswithoutfrontiers.org. Thank you. Thank you. On a brighter note, next Saturday, June 3rd, I am so excited to be going to the West Orange, New Jersey Street Fair for a very special event. Stay with me. I'll be outside the Thomas Edison Laboratory the National Park, signing copies of The Unexpected Light of Thomas Alva Edison from 11 a.m. all afternoon. You can find me at the Friends of the Museum table near the National Park, and the park's bookstore will have copies of The Unexpected Light of Thomas Alva Edison for sale. It's one of my favorite places, so I hope you'll come out, I'll sign your book, and then you can go into the laboratory and experience it with your family. This is really one of the precious and most well-preserved parks in the National Park System. Come check it out. See you next Saturday. My next guest is an Emmy-nominated actress and producer. She starred as Monica in the hugely popular network series, Touched by an Angel. She's also the author of a brand new book out this week, Be an Angel, Devotions to Inspire and Encourage Love and Light Along the Way. And boy, could we use more of that. I joined her at her home in Southern California to talk about why spreading light is as important as receiving it. Here's my exclusive interview with Roma Downey. Roma, you've written this beautiful new book, Be an Angel. You say you want people to live like an angel. What does that mean? Well, you know, in some ways, we are all angels. Um, if we bring hope, if we encourage each other, if we show random acts of kindness to each other. In the research for this book, I, of course, was back in reading my Bible, and angels are referenced so many times, yeah. like more than you might realize, and often they show up, usually with fear not. Right. Um, so I imagine that there was something physical about them that perhaps was a little was bit otherworldly. <laughs> I was a little bit fearful. If the first thing you're saying is, don't be afraid. <laughs> don't be afraid. Um, and as you know, for many years, almost a decade of my life, I had the privilege of playing an angel on the hit TV show, Touched by an Angel. So they've been near and dear to me for a very long time. I really wanted to write a book 
to encourage people to be kind to each other. And so Be an Angel began with that. When I was growing up, Raymond, in Ireland as a, you know, a teenager, in that phase of my life where I was rolling my eyes and, you know, dragging <laughs> myself around, you know, the attitude of teenagers. Yes. Everybody knows what I'm yes. talking oh, about. Yes, and so I would, it. you know, maybe be lying on the couch and there was nothing to do and I was bored. And my father, Paddy Downey, God of mercy on him, would say, you get up, you go out and you do something for somebody else. Come on, up, out. Oh. And he would throw us out, like sometimes into the rain, to go. And honestly, it was just a simple thing, mm. but go and do something for somebody else. And yeah. so those themes are woven throughout, throughout the book. The book. Well, I love that you shatter the image that we have of angels, too. I mean, we think of angels as these kind of, you know, little yeah. cupid doll things that yes. float around, fat little babies. <laughs> no, at one point, in fact, you, you reference them as warrior-ready and battle-tested. Yes, it's true. What about that face of angels yes. that we don't often think well, about? Well, you know, when my husband Mark and I were making the Bible series, mm -hmm. um, obviously we had angelic presence in that a number of times. Yeah, sure. But most profoundly with Angel Gabriel, who showed up at the Annunciation to visit um, uh, Mary. And in the first incarnation of that scene, we had cast a beautiful, strong, and striking actor who had, uh, as I recall, the cherubic uh -huh. blonde curly hair. And we put him in a rather shiny armor um, and sort of white gossamer, uh, floaty, <laughs> ethereal veil, and we put a wind machine on him, mm -hmm. a la Touched by an Angel. I think that was still my aesthetic uh -huh. for bringing Very him nice. to life. And it just, it obviously in this sort of first century setting, it just didn't, didn't work, work at all. And through sort of further conversation and brainstorming, first of all, the armor, you know, we thought how many battles has, has this angel fought on behalf of the Lord? And mm. wouldn't he be more, you know, wor worldly? And, yeah. uh, and so that, uh, you know, changed yeah. the look of him there. And I think, you know, when we think of the angels that are showing up, you know, we might not all be blessed with uh, an angel apparition. We might mm -hmm. drop dead if you saw one, <laughs> right. I don't know, you right. know, Solid or a reality. burning bush or all the ways that God has shown up uh, triumphantly throughout the Bible. But each of us has an opportunity mm -hmm. to be like an angel yeah. in just in goodness and kindness towards each other. And honestly, it's almost like it's a forgotten concept. Every time I open my social media, or go on Twitter, particularly because people can hide behind anonymous names and the bullying and the mean-spiritness. And Nasty. you think, whatever happens about just being nice? And, mm -hmm. you know, these are not massive calls to action, Raymond. Yeah. These are small, doable things, you know? But it, it really is about daily living and the challenges we face in daily living. That's what struck as, as I read it. And the seasons of life which you have lived through as a, as a, a, a young actress, yes. uh, growing up as you did in Ireland, which I want to talk about in a moment, and then raising your children and then letting them go and be their own people. And that, that beautiful transition in how we do need God and we do need his messengers and to be his messengers in those different periods of life. I want to talk about Touched by an Angel for a second, which, I, which haunts this book in many ways. And you mention at one point that God was really the star of that series. Yes. And Martha Williamson, of course, yes. in the way she shaped yeah, these stories, and the way you all embodied them. Tell me about that interplay. What was that like? Did you talk to her at all? Because uh, I know Martha had a hand in shaping a lot of those oh, episodes, yes, and yes. you all were. Was there back and forth about uh, yeah, the direction oh, yeah, of the characters? Yeah, of course. Yeah, we all. I mean, no one, I think, knew the characters that we were each playing more than we did ourselves. You know, and we were playing them for so long. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, on the superficial level, Monica's love of of uh, coffee and tea, Monica's desire to be barefooted, or her love of a hat certainly was drawn right from the pages of my own life. 
Uh, and, you know, you can't see uh, Della Reese's character Tess on screen and not just know that all that sassiness <laughs> and attitude was Miss Reese herself because mm. she just was sass. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it was, those were just wonderful years and a wonderful opportunity. But we had in every episode, we had a scene that became known among ourselves as the angel reveal scene, which usually was myself having been an undercover angel uh, for the for the whole episode, pretending to be a teacher or a nurse or a policewoman or whatever unlikely job I had that week, um, and helping, you know, the, the person that needed the, was at the emotional crossroads in their life, and they finally say, I can't do this by myself, I need help. And that was my cue to say, well, you know, actually I'm not a, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a nurse, I'm not a teacher. I'm an angel and I've been sent by the Almighty with a message for you and here's the message. And then the message was always the same because our because God's love is always constant. And the message was some form of you are loved. God has a purpose for your life. God wants to be part of your life. God loves you. And we would, as a cast and a crew, join hands together before that scene and we would pray and um, I don't I've never been on a set before or since where I have prayed on many as a set but I haven't prayed in a collection of people like that and usually my prayer in that situation was was uh, less of me, more of you, less mm. of me, God, and more of you, and to learn to be a, a vessel for spirit, a you conduit. know, yeah, to be a conduit. Mm. And, you know, this is um, uh, earlier today, you and I were talking, and I said that Della was so good at that, mm. that she was the encourager to say, yeah, yeah, we're actors, but we've been brought to roles for such a time as this. Huh to bring this message to people and, you know, just learn to get out of the way and let yeah. let God do the rest. And, you know, I still run into people who loved Touched by an Angel, who remember fondly curling up with their moms or yeah. their grandmothers and how it really touched their hearts. Well, you tell the story in Be an Angel of being in a hospital. Yes. And this woman coming up to you and saying, oh, thank God you've come. Yes. I was praying. So they equated you and your presence with an angel, the yes. angel they were praying for. No, and that's God's right. That's right, Raymond. Them. And that was a very moving story because, in that particular scenario, when that woman in the hospital, I volunteered at the children's mm -hmm. hospital. When that woman at the hospital approached me, her little baby tragically had unfortunately mm -hmm. just passed. Mm -hmm. And when she saw me in the hall hallway and I tried to kind of be invisible to give them their space, she said, Monica which was the name of the angel that I played. Mm. She said, Monica, I prayed that God would send an angel for my baby, and here you are. And part of me wanted to say, oh, no, Mrs. I, I'm not an angel. You know, I just play one on TV. But thankfully, I didn't say anything. I just held her and I prayed. When I got back that night to my uh, home, I called Della and I told her the story. And she said, so you're upset, but why are you so upset? And I said, because I don't want to be pretending to be something I'm not. Yeah, sure. And she said, well, baby girl, that lady needed an angel. She didn't need an actress. She mm. needed an angel. And I said, yes, but she thought God had sent me there. To which, of course, Della replied, and who said he did? He did. You know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And it just like, it almost took my breath away. Yeah. And from that moment on, I thought, well, how can we be used in a mm. show like this just yeah. to remind people that they are loved and that they are special? Because like Julie Andrews, I imagine there's a moment, <laughs> Roma, where you go, oh, can I retire the wings for a few weeks? I mean, there must be that yeah, as a well, person, as it's an only, The only thing is, it's like, I'm, I'm not suggesting I am an angel. I'm yes. still not suggesting yes. I'm an angel. Every day I start again, Raymond. Mm -hmm. And me then too. anybody that follows me on social media knows that I am slightly obsessed with sunrise. Yeah, I yes. am up with the rising sun and I do my best praying and my best thinking. 
at the at the beginning of the day because the symbolism you know at nighttime particularly if you can't sleep and I'm a menopausal woman so sleep is <laughs> an old friend that I haven't seen yes. for a while I sometimes lie at night and things just have a way of like if you're worried about something that seems small during mm -hmm. the day at nighttime it's amplified yeah, like a million times if anybody ever has felt that but then there's, there's something so beautiful finally you come through like the dark night of your soul and then the sun rises and it's just it doesn't seem quite so bad mm. and you know and it's we have the good fortune to live here mm. by the edge of the water oh. and the sun on the water is lovely and so you know it's just about you know do the best you can till you know better mm. and when you know better do better do that and just you know just every day try mm -hmm. to do the best you can and you know and for me this book was like you know how do we encourage it's really about encouraging each other you know that people will know you know you say well I'm a believer it was like well I can say that till the cows come home mm -hmm. but it's like isn't faith an action too like love is an action well that's what I love it's almost like little uh, stone stepping stones to sanctity yeah. done in a way that's both inspirational but they're action yeah it's practical it's very practical it's a practical thing and listen I'm an Irish woman I've lived in America for a long time I love America mm -hmm. and America has been so good to me but um, the Irish part of me that thinks anything bad happens in your life will have a cup of tea <laughs> anything good happens in your life We'll have a cup, cup, of, cup tea. of tea. <laughs> we just ha you come over for a chat. Well, let's make a cup of tea. Uh -huh. So I really, of course, I was drinking a lots of cups of tea while writing this book. But I wanted to write the book in a way that was like, you know, conversational, mm -hmm. like an intimate, as if it, it was the two it of felt us. Like this. Yeah, as it if it was the two intimate. of us sitting down having a cup of tea. Mm -hmm. And while I hope that gazillions of people find it and read it, I did write it for one person, a person out there that was hurting, that maybe had experienced a disappointment or a broken heart or was grieving the loss of a loved one. I really wrote it that it would be a comforting book, that it would help somebody. You don't have to be on a faith journey. You don't even ha have to have faith. But it's like anchor your morning to starting your day in intention, to starting your day to want to be mindful, conscious and kind. And I wrote this book that if you wanted somewhere to start, that you could start with me. You could start, you could read, I give you a scripture, or I give you an inspirational quote. I share with you a short story of something that has happened in my life, mm -hmm. and then I encourage you to use that theme and maybe take it into your life and do something for somebody else. And let's talk about a few of those. Uh, one, of the, one of the things you mentioned a moment ago, and it pervades this book, is kindness and the need for kindness. And you tell the powerful story of you coming across a little girl in the neighborhood at Christmas time in Derry. <laughs> yes. Tell that yeah. story. Gosh. Because it, yeah. It's one of the ones, it, it well, really it's stands again, it's out. Well, again, you know, now, of course, I see it. Now, I tell the story as an adult, but I experience the story <laughs> as, a, as child. a child. And, you know, and God bless and God rest my mother who really, you know, because she had a delicate job in the story of keeping the magic of Christmas alive uh, through the story of Santa, yeah. but also in teaching me the important lesson of Christmas, mm -hmm. which was to have an open and giving heart. So mm -hmm. I lived up in Derry City mm -hmm. in a little row house on a hill Christmas morning. It was cold, you know, it's not wasn't California yeah, baby that's right. <laughs> it was cold but Christmas morning of course we all couldn't wait to rush out into the street there were lots of children who lived on the street to share the toys that Santa had brought us you know mm -hmm. I got a new bike or I got this book or whatever it was and this wee girl lived up the street from me and she was one of seven children which wasn't unusual in Irish Catholic families right. particularly at that time and she had these twin dolls uh, and she was very happy about them and very proud of them. And the more I looked at them, they started to look very familiar to me. And I thought, I think she has my twin dolls. 
from last Christmas, which had now found a place in the attic at the very top of the house and been replaced by all these new toys. Mm -hmm. So I went running in, in spite of the fact that I got a lot of new toys that morning, I went running up to the attic and I was looking everywhere for these twin dolls mm -hmm. and sure enough, they were gone. My instinct was right. And I went down to my mother and I said, <laughs> that wee girl has my twin dolls. And my mother grabbed me by the shoulders, obviously terrified that I was going to go out and ruin mm -hmm. this child's Christmas, first of all. Mm. The child who was one of seven, their father had died that year. Mm. Obviously, there would have been financial hardship in that family. My mother had done what any good neighbor would do and had gone up into the old attic space and found toys that her children no longer played with mm. and donated them. They'd made new dresses for mm. these dolls and they were going to have a new life. But I said, but how did you give her my dolls if Santa brought them to her? Mm. And my mother said, Santa brings a few toys and then parents have to bring the rest. Mm. And so don't ruin that child's Christmas. Look into your heart, Roma Downey, and find a little bit of Christ in Christmas. And so whatever she said worked. I was a young child at the time. My mother died when I was 10, so I was obviously younger than that. But it has stuck with me all these years um, to, ha to look into your heart and find a little bit of Christ there. And, um, you know, I wrote this book uh, Raymond, it's my third book, so I guess I can stop apologizing for not being much of an author, but I still You're feel fine. like I write like, you know, it's not lofty, it's not hard to read, it's written conversationally, it's written sincerely. And it's intimate and impactful, intimate. and what I like about it is, look, there are, ton, there are tons of inspirational books that are, you should do this, you should do that, here's a quote, you should do that. The nice thing about this is, we're really, it's really a memoir and an inspirational yes. book. It's really both, you're sharing a lot of your yes, journey. Yes, I Some have. of, I was unaware of, did you ever meet Mother Teresa? I know I saw, no, you mentioned her No, I didn't meet her. I would, uh, I would have loved to have met her. Mm. I did have an opportunity to stand on her, um, they had a, a, a podium that had a little step on it, uh -huh. uh, a presidential podium. I know this is so random, but yeah. this is not in my book. Okay. <laughs> uh, and this may not even make it into your show, well, but I'm extra. talking, That's I'm okay. talking. Just over time. Um, you can uh, <laughs> chop where you need, but uh, a few years ago, my husband and I were invited to give the uh, keynote speech together at the yes. National Prayer yeah. Breakfast yeah. Uh, for President Obama. Mm -hmm. And and we did so, and but we decided, my husband likes to be very spontaneous. I like to have a script. Mm. I thought in this situation, a script probably was more advisable with two of us. We weren't yeah. stepping on each other, etc. So the president's office said we could use the president's teleprompter. But I thought I probably should go down there and make sure. I took my shoes with me because I knew they would give me a couple of inches to see if I could see the teleprompter. Right. Well, sure enough, the president is quite tall and I am quite short <laughs> and I couldn't see anywhere. And so the Secret Service, I got a box to stand on, first of all. I thought, oh, that'll work. Oh, that's good. That would work. Mm -hmm. And he said oh, the Secret Service were a bit worried because the box was a bit wobbly. Mm. And then he says, "Not, don't worry, ma'am, because in the morning when the president's podium come, it has a little built-in step in it, ah. and it's the step that Mother Teresa used. In Be an Angel, you hold up a couple of angels in your own life. Uh, you, we, we talked of Delores a moment ago, and Maya Angelou. Yes. Well, I love the line, and you quote it here, that people never remember uh, what you say. They only remember how you make them feel. Yes, I know. Which it's, is, it's powerful, isn't it? Well, it's true. It's like, you know, because you, you won't remember, you think, you, oh, that, that conversation was right. profound and lasting, but you may forget the words over time, but you'll never forget how that person made you feel. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.